this morning. Two passages. We're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. That will be our first reading. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And then we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you would please stand with me once more as we stand in the presence of the living God, we want to hear His Word. As I will emphasize in the message this morning, what Scripture says, God says. What Scripture says, God says. It is our final authority for every aspect of life in this world. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. In fact, I think we'll take it down to verse 26. Brethren, this is the word of Almighty God. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. And now, First Timothy chapter 3. Beginning... In verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you will remain standing for our pastoral prayer this morning, if you have any condition that makes it difficult for you to continue Standing, please be seated. Brethren, let's unite our hearts at the throne of grace 
as we stand in the presence of our King. Our gracious and holy Father, what a mercy thou hast shown us already today. We thank thee for feeding us and clothing us. We thank thee for the roofs over our head. Father, we thank thee that thou hast spared us and brought us safely here that we might gather in the name of thy crucified and resurrected Son. O Christ Jesus, how we bless thee this morning. We praise thee. I ask, O God, that thou would fill our hearts with the mighty power of thy spirit. O breath of God, breath of heaven, fill thy people. Here is thy temple. And every, every congregation across this planet is truly a church of Christ Jesus the Lord. Fill us in these days of darkness. Fill us with light. Fill us with the spirit of love. Fill us with the spirit of praise and adoration and worship. Fill us with a love for thee and a love for one another. O God in heaven, how we magnify thy name. We stand in thy presence, little aware of how glorious thou truly art. But we pray that the power of thy spirit would fall upon us here and we would know we would sense the presence of the Almighty. Father, we can go out into our world and it doesn't take very far or very long to feel the presence of the powers of darkness in this world. But, oh God, we are here gathered for light and life in Jesus Christ the Savior. Oh, may thy spirit fall, fall upon this place Fill us, fill thy people everywhere with the joy of thy salvation. Fill us with the sense of the darkness and foulness of our sins and grant us true repentance that we might look to the cross of Christ and see our sins washed away forever. O oh, blessed Savior now, for those who do not know thee in this place today, my prayer for them, my earnest plea, O Christ, is that in thy sovereign purpose thou didst bring them here today. And I pray that thy word and thy spirit would move them to see their need of Christ and the willingness of Christ to save sinners. And O God, I pray for thy dear children, how thou dost love them, how thou hast perfected thy glorious purpose and plan for their salvation in Christ by the power of the Spirit in the light of thy precious word. Now, Father, sanctify them. Thou hast opened their hearts. Thou hast come in the new birth. Repentance and faith has sprung forth from their hearts. They have believed on the Lord Jesus and now they feed upon him. They feed upon his word and they've come hungry today to feast upon him. And I pray that thou wouldst do that. Let them hear thy word. Let the manna from heaven satisfy them. And oh God, 
Protect them. Encourage them. Build them up, Father, for those who are struggling hard with sin. Grant them grace. Grant them rest in thee. And give them strength to overcome. Let them be those who overcome. Father, lift their hearts with joy. Cleanse them. And Father, for those that have delighted in Thee and have this week known joy in walking with Thee, may their hearts be filled with praise and magnifying Thee. Now, O God, we want Christ. We want His Word. We want the power of His Spirit fall upon us here. And we ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. The God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth, speaks words. Words are units of meaning. Words express what's in our mind or our heart. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God. The Apostle John declares, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As the Word, Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus will always be the Word of God. The Word of God to this world. He will always be the perfect expression of God's mind, God's grace, God's glory to sinful human minds. I don't miss that. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a comic book hero. As much as our generation tries to make him so or tries to ape him with their heroes. Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of God's mind, now and forever. The perfect expression of God's mind, God's glorious grace, God's glory. The radiant outshining of all of its perfections, Jesus, is that. And all for the benefit of sinful minds that don't understand much. Stated simply, Jesus Christ expresses the mind of God to the minds of men. Do you believe that? Before the eternal Son of God became a man, the Spirit spoke to men, women, and children by human prophets. And the words of the prophets were written down under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Then the eternal word became flesh. That is, the Son of God became a man. 
As a man, Jesus perfectly preached and taught God's mind. God's words to sinners. Jesus chose apostles and their associates to write down his life and words under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The apostles preached and taught the words of the prophets and the words of Jesus under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In that way, they established churches, that is, communities of believers in Christ and His words, and they advanced the kingdom in a pagan world. Finally, Jesus gave the words of the prophets and the apostles to the world in the Bible. We have God's mind on the matter of who He is, on the matter of who we are, and on the matter of the salvation of our immortal souls. And Jesus chose and chooses pastors and teachers to preach and teach his word to the congregations that he has established and to the world. I hope you've followed the train of thought. God speaks. And in our day, he speaks through his word and spirit brought by weak and feeble vessels of dust. The messenger isn't the important thing. The message is. Now, for that reason, one of the ways that a church recognizes that God has chosen a man to be an elder is this. He is apt to teach. And that's the title of our message this morning. Apt to teach. May God, our loving Heavenly Father, bless us this day. May Christ, the head of the church, enlighten our hearts. Enlighten all those who hear this message by the power of the Holy Spirit. My flesh will do no one good. God's word, enlightened by the Spirit, empowered in regeneration, saves the soul. And that is my hope today. And may the Spirit call the lost and edify Christ's people by the infallible words. Well, we have one main heading this morning, and that's a candidate for eldership in one of Christ's churches must be apt to teach. Must. It's not any option, as we've seen in the Apostle's Word. It is absolutely necessary. He is no elder, no bishop, no pastor, no shepherd in Christ's church unless he is apt to teach. That's from verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, 
vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now, let us remember that Paul wrote this letter directly to Timothy. And by the way, let me say for those of you visiting, we believe that the scriptural model for the churches that Christ establishes is a plurality of elders, more than one pastor. I think any fair study of the New Testament would show that that is the model set before us repeatedly. And as we bid a sad and joyful farewell to one of our pastors last year, we are in the process of praying for and crying out to God to pluralize the eldership here. So, having said that, we know from Scripture and from history The apostles' writings were read aloud in the gathered congregations. They weren't walking around with nice leather-bound Bibles. They didn't have it. They didn't have the blessing that every single one of you holding a Bible has. But they had the teaching of the apostles. Timothy or some trusted member of the church there in Ephesus would read this letter that Paul wrote to his young co-worker, Timothy. And quite possibly in the presence of the false teachers that were corrupting and infecting the congregation. So with that in mind, the sacred text says a bishop then must be Apt to teach. It isn't just, oh, well, he needs to be able to say one, two, three, four, this is it. There is something to this notion of apt to teach, and that is what we will give our minds to this morning. To preach, and and that brings us to a question. I skipped right over a question. It's right here. Why apt to teach instead of apt to preach? When you read the Word of God, do you think when you're reading? Do you actually think? Do you ask questions? I'm not talking in in the the, the ways and means of an atheist. But I mean, do this is God speaking. It's God's voice by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you talk to Him? Do you say, why is that here? Why did He put that part about Jesus' life right there in that chapter? Why is that there? What does it mean? Why in the world, when we see preaching, 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 and when we think of someone who stands before the congregation, we think, preacher. Why didn't he say, apt to preach? Well, to preach has more to do with proclamation. Repent and believe the gospel. For the kingdom of God is near. That's preaching. That is declaration of the truth. It has more to do with announcing, with declaring and proclaiming the facts without explanation. 
Teaching has more to do with taking your time and detailed explanation. You can take good-hearted men who know and understand the gospel and put them outside of a bar or the Super Bowl or somewhere and they can call people, they can preach, repent of your sins and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And some sinners might come. But that doesn't make them elders. See the difference? You can proclaim without necessarily having the gifts to do a sustained ministry of teaching God's people for years. Matthew tells us, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was doing both. He was explaining things and he was proclaiming things. In his great commission, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and, doesn't say preach to all the nations, though that certainly took place and that was certainly right. But he said, Go teach them. Why? Because he wants the world. He's not looking for a decision on a street corner, he's looking to establish his kingdom throughout the world. And he wants men to go and preach the gospel, and to teach the doctrines of Christ, to establish hearts and minds and souls in the truth of God. When the apostles were imprisoned but set free by an angel in Jerusalem, we read, they ceased not to teach, and preach Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the Acts of the Apostles ends by revealing Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all the time in the ministry of the Word, there is preaching and teaching. Often they overlap. When someone is teaching about the, the glories and the beauty of Christ and his person, they fall to preaching and proclaiming, Come, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a wonderful proclamation. Not a lot of explanation. Not a lot to teach. Come. To Christ for the pardon of your sins. And very often when you're preaching, you stop and you explain some things. And you try to say, well, I, I just said this. This is what Paul is going for. Now let's stop for a few minutes and think about what he's saying. Right? That's when you're falling to teaching. Right? So proclamation, declaration, and teaching go together. As we look at the qualifications of an elder, he must be able to teach. 
A man can preach the same thing on a thousand street corners. But a man that comes in on the Lord's Day can't preach the same sermon for five years or 10 or 20. He is to take the word of God and to bring the whole counsel of God to God's people so that they grow up, so that they start to look more like Jesus in their lives. So, preaching is usually, there are always exceptions, preaching is usually shorter proclamation. And teaching is usually more concerned with careful and detailed explanation. They work together. They go together well, as we have seen here in the scriptures. And there are many passages where preaching and teaching are coupled. It doesn't mean that an elder is not able to preach. But it does mean he must be able to under, listen carefully, understand the meaning of Scripture and the doctrine that it contains and apply it to God's people suitably. That's how they grow. That's how they mature as they're becoming like Christ. Well, the two overlap and this is the reason that we have apt to teach as opposed to apt to preach. Not against preaching in the slightest. Not in the slightest. But a man has to be able to sustain a ministry in a congregation that requires teaching. So then, what does apt to teach mean? The three English words apt to teach are translated from one Greek word. <clears throat> it can be translated able to teach or qualified to teach, but can also be translated skillful in teaching. That seems to be the majority view in the Greek lexicons. For those of you who don't know the word lexicon, it's simply a fancy word for dictionary. The Greek dictionaries tell us very plainly that skill in, pre in teaching is what that's pointing at. It's not just the ability to recite facts. And I fear that many cannot discern between the two. It's one thing for somebody to just cycle some facts toward you. It is another thing for a man to be skillful in bringing the truth to bear on your mind and heart. So all those definitions, able to teach, qualified to teach, skillful in teaching, are correct. Uh, you look at various translations, you'll see sooner or later that uh, the translators of a particular XYZ uh, translation of the Bible uh, has taken able to teach or qualified to teach. <clears throat> so, why are we taking time with this? Because apt to teach is the one characteristic that sets apart those that are elders or pastors from the deacons. 
The deacons are not to be just good old boys that happen to be friends of the congregation. They're to be holy men, men of faith, men filled with the Holy Spirit. If everybody took the qualifications of elder and deacon seriously, many of our churches would be transformed very quickly. I grew up thinking that it was the deacons that ran the church because they were the ones that made all the decisions and were the ones that kicked out a pastor or brought a pastor in. God never gave them that power. And they don't have that power. <clears throat> so, so what are we talking about then? We're talking about apt to teach. Somebody who is skilled in taking the truths of God and explaining and applying them to the lives of God's people. He must be able to do that. Whatever good things he is or can do, he's not a pastor of a congregation if he does not have that qualification. <clears throat> this means that apt to teach involves, now some of you won't like this, but I just ask you to stay with me for a moment so that you can hear it and think it through. To be apt to teach demands mental skills. It takes mental skills. You say, doesn't it take the Holy Spirit? It begins with the Holy Spirit. It's carried by the Holy Spirit. And it's finished in the Holy Spirit. But God gifts men to use their minds in the service of God. And you begin to understand something about a man's gifts when he takes the Word of God, explains it to you, and you think, if I hadn't thought about that. Now, I'm not talking about making up wild stuff. I'm just talking about looking at the text and saying, sure enough, that's what it says right there. And in the context, this is obvious what it means. So it involves... Mental skills. You didn't just hear me say a guy has to be a genius <laughs> to be an elder or, or I don't know any. Not attacking anybody's abilities. But he's got to be able to think because he's going to have to think through. He's going to have to meditate in the scriptures. Paul commanded Timothy, meditate on these things which would include the scriptures and the doctrine that he had learned from Paul so that everybody begins to see that you are profiting. Your life cannot profit God's way without his word. And teachers need to be able to do the study, the prayer, and the meditation that you don't have the time for. So this is an important matter. <clears throat> Mental skills, this could be different with each man. Again, no geniuses here, but which help a man to understand the apostolic truth, to declare it well, and to defend it. And we'll see more about that. In his book, Biblical Eldership, uh, Alexander Strauch captures and expands our understanding this way Quote, The ability to teach entails three basic elements. A knowledge of Scripture, the readiness to teach, and the ability 
to communicate. I've known men that were borderline geniuses if they weren't full-blown geniuses. But they could stand in 15, 20 minutes, have everybody in the room baffled because no one could understand him. Yes, it matters if he can speak clearly. Well, you're depending on the flesh. No, I'm depending on the gift from God. To use human beings. If you haven't noticed yet, and I trust that you all have by now, (laughs) the God who made the heavens and the earth is pleased to use broken vessels to do his work. Just the fact. There aren't any perfect ones among us, beginning right here behind the pulpit. So... Ability to communicate matters. And I would add that all of this must arise from the presence, power, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are people, and I've, I've lived long enough now to see it, and from time to time I can, I can identify it. When somebody has the gift of gab, they can stand up and they can say things and they can throw some Jesus stuff in there and all they need to do is throw a couple of Bible-thumping amen statements and people go home thinking that they've heard from God. When all you got was a used car salesman standing behind the pulpit or the guy that comes to your door and sells you a vacuum cleaner that you don't want. There are people who are persuasive in their use of words (laughs) or none of the politicians would be in office. It's just a fact. Just having the gift of gab, just having a big vocabulary, just sowing the name of Jesus into a bunch of ramblings does not make a man a preacher. Though in our day, people will say almost anything is a preacher. That's astounding. In fact, it's shocking. So, <clears throat> Paul uses this word, apt to teach again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. We read it at the beginning. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. He must not strive. He goes on to say that he must be gentle unto all men. Now, this... This does not mean that in battles with those who are attacking and, deny, attacking and denying the faith that we never solidly reprove and rebuke them. People hear gentle and they immediately turn to mush. Jesus was the most gentle person that ever lived, but he could look at one of his dearest friends And say, get thee behind me, Satan. Is that so? So there are times to be very strong with your attitude. But generally speaking, you should be gentle when you're talking even with your enemies. That's the context here. False teachers. Paul says, you know, be gentle with all men. And that would include the false teachers there. Listen to what he goes on to say. 
He must be apt to teach. He must be patient. And then what's the purpose of it? That they might bring them to repentance. That's the love of men's souls. You love men's souls even if they are your dire enemy. You want to graciously speak to them of Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul gives parallels in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, And the things that thou, and he's still speaking to Timothy, he said, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. Part of what Timothy is supposed to do is to appoint men in the congregation who know the apostolic truth, who believe the apostolic truth, and who can teach, communicate the apostolic truth in the face of demonic doctrines of devils. He says that those faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. It goes down from generation to generation. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, children, the word gainsayer is probably not one you hear in your household a lot, unless someone's reading the scriptures to you. Well, what's a gainsayer? And that's, that's someone who contradicts what you're saying. If your parents have ever said, don't you talk back to me. If they've ever said that, they were saying in so many words, you're a gainsayer. <clears throat> A gainsayer contradicts. The Jews were constantly contradicting Jesus and then the apostles. And they would stand and they would deny what they were saying. That's what Paul's talking about. They would talk back. They would argue. Paul would try to teach. The Lord Jesus would try to teach. They would throw in their questions. They would do what they can to verbally assault from time to time. They're gainsayers. They're talking back and denying what's being said. Paul says he ought to be apt to teach. An elder ought to be apt to teach so that he might convince the gainsayers, even those that are arguing against your doctrine. Sometimes the enemies of the faith become servants of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard the name Paul. <clears throat> he was such a, an, an, a horrifying persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ and yet the Lord saved him the Lord the Lord saved that gainsayer so we should be able to say these things Paul knew this when he said it let's remember that it's Paul telling Timothy to talk to the gainsayers be gentle to all men <clears throat> but you've got to be apt to teach why why don't you just go I uh -uh, don't want to talk to y'all because pastors are called upon, as all of you are called upon, to defend the faith. Let me, let me throw in a quick footnote to the young people here. I delight with all my heart in those of you that have come to saving knowledge of Christ. 
I will say, I can't, I can't say this 100%, but I would say at the very least, very few of you have ever fought for what you believe. You've grown up in the house, you've heard the truth, but you haven't had to defend it. Some of us are very intense about what we believe because we have spent decades defending what we believe because there are plenty of enemies out there, many of them who call themselves Christians. So, brethren, this is not a little matter. Young people, I charge you before the Lord Jesus Christ. If you profess to know the Lord Jesus, know what you believe and why you believe it. Not just what dad said. I mean, that's a good source for information, but that will not defend the faith. You've got to go to this book that you say you believe and say, I believe that Jesus is truly the living God come in the flesh because, and then there should be some becauses from you. If not, you're robbing yourself and you're setting yourself up to be snatched away by false doctrine. If you don't think the enemy and doctrines of devils are out there more intensely working right now than COVID, you're not plugged in. When you have to fight for what you believe, and I don't mean weapons or fists or any of that, I'm talking about the sword of the Spirit, if you have not protected the faith, if you have not defended the faith, you need to think about why. I wrote a booklet on modesty. There were those, I know this is probably shocking to you, but there were those that didn't receive it well. In our culture, which is in love with nakedness, and I'm talking about professing Christians as well, to say, actually, I believe in modesty because Paul commands it, and we can look through the scripture and find things that help us understand why that's important. I fought for that. I don't back down on it easily. Someone can prove me wrong, and I will be glad to take their instruction. The fact of the matter, that that hasn't appeared in 20 years. So I would urge you to say, I would, I would urge you, and I say to each of you, young people, know, K-N-O-W, why you believe, what you believe, and why you believe it. Start studying your confession. Start studying the Word of God, not just reading a chapter in the morning for devotions. Study it. Try to find out why we believe there's such a thing as a trinity when the word trinity does not appear in the Bible. Why do we believe that Jesus is God when he could say something like this? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Did Jesus say that? He said that. Is that not a denial of his being God? I'm going to let you answer that. Study it. Find out what Jesus meant. So, <clears throat> being skilled in teaching then means that a man has been taught
apostolic truth. This is what's happened with Timothy. He learned it from Paul. He has learned apostolic truth, and he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit to teach it clearly, authoritatively, and well. And he does it to God's people. He feeds God's people with God's nourishing truth. And he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit to teach it clearly and to defend it earnestly against false teachers and gainsayers, deniers, contradictors. We see something like this in the words of J.N.D. Kelly. Let me say for our visitors, I don't usually quote a lot of sources or or men, but uh, I've been doing so just so that it would be very clear. I'm not spinning these issues regarding what God requires of an elder. There are many that are in full agreement with the things that I'm saying to you this morning. Uh, commentator uh, J.N.D. Kelly puts it this way, quote, he should be a skilled teacher. That's what the Greek means. The overseers are probably to be in, identified with that group within the body of elders who are occupied with preaching and teaching. Now, he is of the persuasion that there are teaching elders and ruling elders. We are presently not convinced of that position, but that's what he's pointing to. And he's saying these duties are more fully specified in Titus 1.9 as comprising A, loyalty to the apostolic tradition, B, readiness to instruct the congregation in it, and C, vigilance in confuting those who pervert it. Now, to confute somebody means to prove that they're wrong or that what they believe is wrong. That's the idea. Well, wait a minute. I thought elders and pastors of church were just to be like old gray-haired or white-haired or silver-haired grandpas that just talk sweet to everybody. No. No. If they've been with Christ, walking with Christ for decades and decades, they're people who know how to love, how and when to speak gently, and when to roll in like a tank. Apt to teach includes defending the faith. And sometimes that's not pretty. Now, if you think that Kelly's uh, definition, his comment there was a bit too wordy, I'll simplify it. Number one, an elder must be knowledgeable and faithful. Knowledge, knowledgeable and faithful to the apostolic teaching. Where do I get the apostolic teaching? Here. We have the words of Paul. We have the words of Peter. We have the words of John. We've got the apostolic teaching. Number two, he must be ready and able to teach it. 
That means he must have some mental skills in understanding what the apostles said and what they meant. When you lift words out of their context, you can make them say anything. <clears throat> Again, this is not relying on the flesh. This is using the gifts God gives in order to do this work. Number three, he must defend it. That's simple. He must be knowledgeable and faithful of the apostolic teaching. He must be ready and able to preach and teach it, and he must defend it. <clears throat> A man may understand the eternal truths of the gospel. He may be able to communicate them correctly to others. Yet, he may not be skillful in teaching. He may not be apt to teach. Because it's more than passing on correct information. The force of the word apt is well expressed by Walter Liefeld. He says, quote, The phrase able to teach refers to ability, not knowledge. The man's ability able to teach. <clears throat> and he, he says, cross-reference that with 2 Timothy 2.24, where following a reference to the heretics, Paul turns to the manner in which Timothy is to refute them and the ability we must have to do that. Even though teaching the truth was important at Ephesus because of the spread of false doctrine, and we live in a day of false doctrine. I mean, Christianity, professing Christianity in our country is rightfully despised. It is the... It is the most messed up, confused package of people who know the truth and heretics that I've seen in my entire life. And the internet has been one of the greatest spreaders. False doctrine. Young people, be careful on the internet. Not just because of things like scammers and porn, but because of the unbelievable amount of false gospel False doctrine is out there. Paul could say in his day to the Corinthians, you know what, Corinthians? I helped establish your church, but I'm really concerned about you. He said, if someone comes along with a false gospel, another gospel, you might believe it. Now, how loving is that? It's as loving as it gets. The man who loves you the most will tell you the truth at the cost of your friendship. If he fudges on the truth because of your friendship, he's not really your friend. Even though teaching the truth was important at Ephesus, because of the false doctrine, the stress is on ability rather than on correct doctrine, which is undoubtedly assumed. Uh, close quotes. In other words, he's not saying that Paul wasn't concerned about the doctrine. He's talking to Timothy, who he personally taught. He knew, and he exhorts him later in another chapter, in the presence of Christ, before the Lord Jesus and his return, I'm commanding you to preach the word. And that means preach what you heard from me. Those called by God may not have the gifts of George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, 
or David Martin Lloyd-Jones. They may not be dynamic personalities, powerful and eloquent orators, or extremely gifted men. For the Lord gives only a precious few of these in each generation. But the man called of God must be able to preach and teach God's word by the empowering spirit of God and feed it to the Lord's people in a clear, understandable way. And that requires several things. Let's talk about that for just a few moments. It requires first a mind completely submitted to the absolute authority of God's word. If you've got any doubt about whether it's the word of God or not, you may be a great guy, you may have a great mind, you might even be a great teacher, but you can't get in the pulpit here or any place that understands what a true elder is. You must be sold in the truest sense that the the word of God is the absolute authority. It judges us. We do not judge it. Number two, and and let me just say, as I said before the, the message, remember what Scripture says, God says. It is Scripture that is infallible. Every pastor, the true pastors that you know, is fallible. But we have an authority that is not fallible. So, number two, he must have a mind in tune with the basic content, contents of Scripture. We get that? He needs to have, and I'm not talking about anybody having a completely encyclopedic knowledge. We'd all, want, we'd all like that. But generally speaking, they've got to understand the storyline from Genesis to Revelation. They've got to have some idea of how those parts work together. That's very difficult at some moments. No one does this perfectly. But let me just give you an example. I was talking with a man who was a graduate from a very well-known seminary. He got very high honors and degrees in his graduation. He had been a pastor for several years when he was sitting in his office at his desk and realized he had never read the Bible all the way through. Capital N-E-V-E-R. He told me this personally. I didn't read about it. I was stunned. He said, I learned all the stuff that they taught me. I learned my system. I had my eschatology. I had all of that down. But I never read the scriptures all the way through. If you're going to be a man called of God, you need to know something about the basic contents of the scriptures. Number three, he must have a mind and a heart in tune with the Bible's self-interpretation and the unfolding drama of redemption. The Old Testament isn't just about, oh, well, it's just about Moses and the law, but the New Testament is about Jesus. That's a great mistake. The Old Testament is full of Christ Jesus. 
It is full of Christ Jesus. And it points to him. It's just like, it's like so many hundreds of, of signposts going, Jesus, Jesus, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Then the New Testament, the four gospels say, he came. And he's coming again. But you've, you've got to have a mind and a heart that's in tune with the way the scripture deals with itself. How do you deal with the fact that, that Matthew, in the first chapter of his gospel, reaches back into Hosea and pulls, he pulls out a passage that has to do with Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my son. He's talking about Israel. But he applies it to Jesus. Was he crazy? Did he, was he like one of those days where it was like he was studying with his Strong's Concordance here. He was tired and he just said, oh man, I don't know if I can finish this. Well, that sounds like something that would work here. Or was he guided by the Holy Spirit? And do we have to sit down and say, why did he take something that points to national Israel and apply it to Jesus, the Son of God? Oh, you need to understand something about the way the Scriptures interpret themselves. No one's perfect at this, but you've got to have some idea. Or you're going to be saying, well, the Bible teaches this, when in its context, it's not teaching that. <clears throat> Next, he must have a mind to study Scripture diligently and carefully and then the ability to explain it clearly and apply it appropriately. In other words, he must have a mind to study what the Bible says, wrestle with what it means and the ability then to apply it wisely. What does it say? What does it mean? And how do I live that? If you don't get the what does it mean, you won't live it right. Do we see? This is very important. This is vital. Well, anyway, sixth, my numbering may be off here. He must also have at least an appreciable measure... <laughs> Of common sense. Just, an, just a, an appreciable measure. Of common sense. If he starts pulling wild speculations out of the word of God. Which some guys do. Or cannot perceive the obvious in a text. Or cannot make the clear connections of scripture. Um, he's not ready to pastor God's people. Because you can't feed them right. And very often they'll sit there and they won't be Berean. They will not go home and look at their Bibles to see if what he said had any relation at all to what God said. Being Berean, folks, is an important thing. One of the reasons I missed Brother Clarence so much in the early days long before he was an elder, he would come to me and he said, you know, you said this about this particular passage. Are you sure that's what that means? 
I love people like that. I love them. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. I would have to go back and rethink what I looked at. Sometimes I would say, yeah, that, I think I had it right. Then there were times when it's like, I think you're, you're exactly right. I need to uh, correct that. Being Berean is biblical. Well, <clears throat> by the way, being Berean doesn't mean hearing something in a sermon and then immediately going and scouring the internet for someone that will argue with you. There are people that do that all the time. Two, two groups of people in the world have, have moments of hating the internet. Doctors and pastors. Because people go out onto the internet and they, ah, oh, well, you know, a doctor said this, but you know, this guy over here is, you know, sending, selling me some snake oil. It's great. I'm going to do that. I mean, you know, he's putting to death, you know, the multi-billion dollar dental association and all of their junk. <clears throat> and then they just give them their money and they think they've done something. Listen, many of us in here have become, because of the wickedness that's out there, we've become anti-authoritarian. Anti-authority, not authoritarian. We should be anti-authoritarian, but anti-authority. And there's times when if somebody spent 30 years of their life studying a particular thing, it might be worth our listening carefully to what they have to say. Doesn't always mean they're right. But discernment. Young people, you're coming into a world where you need as much discernment as you can possibly muster. And that's not going to come from sitting and chatting on the internet. It's going to come from giving your heart and your mind to the study of God's Word and to faithful men throughout the centuries who have taught the truth of God. Or you'll be swept away. I have seen it. Well, as we have seen, the primary duties of, the, of, of an overseer are to pray and to preach and to teach the word of God. It is obvious then that he must be observably gifted for that intense and often exhausting labor. That is precisely why Paul instructs Timothy, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine many of you don't really seem to understand that the last number of decades probably going at least back to the 60s how much hatred there is in our society how much hatred for authority hollywood has given you the government schools have given you and all the rest the, the usual culprits a hatred for authority unless they have it of course And the complete uh, turning away, everybody's had a bad experience in a church and therefore they put any church they go to within the, the bands of the bad experience they had. That's not being fair to the church. It's not being fair to your elders. Well, I had a bad experience. A guy did this and it looked kind of like what he was doing. How'd you, why don't you go ask him if that's what he's doing instead of sitting and talking about him. Go talk to him. Brethren, this is astounding where we've come to. Not only is there a hatred for authority, there is a hatred for doctrine. That's an ugly word in a lot of people's minds. Well, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. 
That's what it's meant to do. It divides believers from unbelievers. Well, let me jump ahead and try to finish this morning. If you'll look down on your your outline, I've got elders must be able to feed God's flock. Elders must be able to feed God's flock. Sometimes somebody just gets up there and tells you their study notes. What we need is someone who's wrestled with God so that we might preach something living to God's people. Again, many today have so little discernment, they can't tell when they're just getting, oh, well, he must have stayed up late, you know, getting some notes for that. Like, oh, wait a minute. Did it move your heart to worship? Did it move your heart to obedience? Did it move your heart to repentance? Did it make you come into contact with the living God and realize, I'm talking to you? In my early days, some of the men that I listened to were very, very well-educated men, and I'm not. And so I thought I had to sound a particular way when I would preach. And again, I speak of my beloved uh, former elder. And uh, it was right after I got here, and I preached something, and there were several weeks of things going very well. And then he came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know what? I think just about everything you said this morning just did this with everybody. Just went right over their heads. Boy, I had to go home and think about that. Well, it sounded like this. All right, you don't care if it sounds like that. You want to hear from Jesus. If you're born of God, you want to hear from Jesus. And you'll take a guy who murders the king's English who knows how to hold forth Jesus over a guy who sounds like, oh, he's got all kind of letters behind his name. This is living, brethren. This is not about doing really, really interesting sessions. This is not about doing really, really, really interesting mm, psychological approaches. This is about hearing from God and learning to walk in it. He must be able to feed God's people. Feed the flock of God which is among you, is what Peter said to the elders in his day. Taking the oversight, that means being a bishop, not to constraint, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Go because your mind is charged and on fire with doing what God has called you to do, not to make a buck. I mean, again, if our culture really believed that, half these charlatans that are on the radio and on the internet, they would be shut down. No, we... We love bad shepherds. We love people that tell us what we want to hear. We want people to be so sweet. We want Santa Claus behind the pulpit. But God never did. Jesus never did. Jesus told the Pharisees they were on the way to a double hell. Because they didn't believe him. Listen. This is life or death. This is eternity that we're talking about. And so what does Peter say? What does he say to the other elders? Did you get a nice vacation package with that church? 
He said, feed God's people. Feed God's people. Some of them aren't going to like it. You're not nice enough. Well, we'll work on that. But brethren, I have told you before, I tell you again, we are living in very dangerous days, spiritually. The doctrines of devils fill this nation, fill the political offices, fill the public schools. I am telling you, if you don't have a hold of the truth, you will believe the lies that that the powers of darkness are vomiting up at the fastest rate I've ever seen. What's the answer? It's not guns and bombs. It is Christ Jesus and the truth about him. So, Paul commanded the Ephesian elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. A pastor is a shepherd, and he's to give a shepherd's care to the blood-bought flock of Jesus Christ. Let me put it another way. Sheep need sheep food. Sheep like sheep food. And Jesus' sheep love Jesus. And they love what he commands. He didn't make any suggestions. What he says your life ought to be, that is where joy is. If you're living outside of that, I guarantee you, you are settling for the world's trash. It is only Christ that fills the heart with true joy and thanksgiving. Jesus loved his sheep before the foundation of the world. And because of his great love for them, he appoints elders to feed them his word, both the good and the hard. Both the smooth things that comfort them and the things that make them say, okay, what's my spiritual condition right now? If this is true, I'm in trouble. Yes! And what should you do? Beat yourself to death about it. No, run to Christ. Go to Christ. Look at him on the cross and realize he's paid the penalty for your sins. And then praise him and serve him because you love him. He has loved you. Love him back with your life. No church is the personal property of any pastor. An elder's function within a congregation is not to impress God's people with his learning, with his vocabulary, to mesmerize them with his fancy words, to entertain them with his storytelling, or to overawe them with his delivery. They're to feed God's people. That's going to be different from man to man. But one thing will be the same. They're apt to teach. They know how to set the apostolic doctrine before God's people. They know how to feed it to them. He knows when, he knows when, or at least he tries to learn when they need to be comforted and when they need to be rebuked. It isn't all of one or the other. 
Some people need comfort. Some people need food. Some people need strength. Some people need an arm around them to weep with them. Almighty God has not placed elders amongst God's people to be an entertainer, to tell them sob stories, or to manipulate their emotions. He is not there to tickle their ears with what their flesh wants to hear. Neither is he there to browbeat them or verbally flog them into submission. Instead, he is to feed God's beloved people with the heavenly food of God's word. Christ's spirit must be in his heart. Christ's doctrine must be in his mouth. Christ's cross must be on his shoulder. And Christ's people must be in his prayers. Otherwise, Christ's crown will never be on his head. The true pastor knows that those who are born of God's Spirit feast upon Jesus Christ and love him above all else in life. So he gives them the food they love best. Here is Christ. Here's what he said. Here is the eternal Son of God who in the glorious purpose of God came into this world to become man. The eternal Son of God became man to do what God can't do and that is to die. He came to die as the sin-bearing substitute of His people. His people love that because His people know that they're sinners. They know that even on their best day, their, all their good works would be just like a chain and an anchor that would drop them right into hell. Nobody will ever get into heaven by how good he thinks he is. The only thing you can do is to repent of your sins. Tell God you are a rebel. You've lived your own selfish pig life. And now you want to believe on him who died on Calvary's cross for sinners. Are you a sinner? then you qualify to apply to the Lord Jesus. Are you a sinner? Do you break God's law? Do you, I can tell you if you break God's law, you live for what you want to do. By the way, that's the doctrine of Satan. Did you know that? The very words from the 60s, and I was around when they started saying it. Do your own thing, man. Do your own thing. That's Satan's doctrine. Do you not get that? Do your own thing. No, no. Here's what the book says. Here's the apostolic teaching. Do what Jesus says. Do what Jesus says. Walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ's elders must know and experience the holiness of the living God. He must understand the horror and the corruption of sin, his own sin. He must understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. He must understand the joys of salvation while understanding the dangers of the world and of your flesh. He must exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ and he must call men, women, and children to repent of their sins and believe on the crucified and risen Christ, to cast away all of their idols, which usually believes the biggest one sitting up in the heart of most of us is me. That's, that's most people's God and religion. And all this comes only by the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. I hope throughout every week, 
You pray that the Spirit of God will fall on this while we are singing and while we are praying and while we are hearing God speak or it falls to the ground. We, don't, we come in cold, hard, maybe pick up in the last few minutes of what's going on in the sermon. No, brethren, you don't want that. If you're born of God, God's Spirit, call on Christ, the head of the church, to meet with us in power, transforming the lost, sanctifying the saved. Well, elders must be able to defend Christ's flock. I won't elaborate on that. It's, it's very clear in what the idea of apt to teach means. It comes right there in 2 Timothy chapter 2. There were false teachers in Ephesus. Paul deals with that in 1 Timothy, and he deals with it in 2 Timothy. And he tells Timothy how to deal with that. I hope you can defend what you believe. Because the day will come when it will be tested. And to know why you believe fills the heart with joy and peace. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Jesus Christ saves and keeps his people. Well, I close by saying all these things must be motivated by two, two things. Everything that I've said must be motivated by two things. Are you ready? You, you'll be able to remember this, even if you don't write it down. What must be burning in a man's heart for him to be an elder and apt to teach? Number one, clear, manifest, obvious, apparent love for Christ. If that's not driving his life, he shouldn't be in the pulpit. And number two, a visible, demonstrable love for Christ's people. If he says, oh, I love the Lord, but I get a little tired dealing with these people. He doesn't belong in the pulpit. Because you're serving Jesus by serving his people. Apt to teach is an important thing. It's a very broad thing, but it's clear that a man must have some measure of identifiable skill in teaching. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. We now turn to obeying thee in that wonderful ordinance of baptism. Father, I thank Thee for these folk that are gathered here today. I thank Thee for the many visitors that we have. And I pray that Thou wouldst move them, touch their hearts. May all of us see the importance of knowing Christ. And Father, I do pray for Thy people, those that, that come here regularly and, and worship and adore the Lord Jesus. Bless them. Let them take at least one thing from this sermon and apply it to their lives this week. And now, O oh God, may we bring glory and praise and honor to Thee, now and forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Brother Craig and I are going to change, and then we will have our time of baptism. We invite you all to say, stay. You can say what you want to. 
but stay and uh, we'll obey the Lord Jesus in his command to baptize. I will have someone bring my bag up.